0: a new seven part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Can you tell me the story um, about what we saw the night before Paul died?
0: I was driving you to a hockey game, and we saw an accident on the way home.
1: And what was the accident? Can you read me the letter the, the letter you wrote to Paul about it uh, um, after he died? Um,
0: when driving home, Alex and I attempted to turn right on Hampton, and there seemed to be an accident. I had to turn around and make a detour. I thought of how scared I always was that one of you would get hit coming home. I felt so relieved that I knew you were home. Alex was with me and Sarah downtown. I then got an uneasy feeling that maybe you weren't safe. A little apprehensively, I ran up our stairs, leaving Alex to get his own hockey equipment out of the trunk. I peeked in our window and saw you. And saw you, sweet son, stretched out watching TV. I came in the house, sat down beside you on the couch, and for the last time in my life, and yours on this earth, pulled your head to my shoulder alex came in and sat on the side of the sofa and i put my arm around him and holding you both said i am so lucky to have such two precious boys i love you both so much you tolerated this in your sweet good-natured way you said you're so paranoid mom every time you see an accident you think something is going to happen to us we're fine and then took your dinner downstairs to watch the sports (laughs) (laughs)
2: That was the day before
0: That was the day before The night before
1: Yeah I'm Alex McKinnon And this is Sorry About The Kid Chapter 4 Macho Man Ninja Four years after Paul was killed, Serge Markovic was found guilty of criminal negligence in operating an automobile, causing death. My parents read a statement in court at his sentencing. It scribbled on the back of a recipe for pickled peppers.
3: The continued service of Mr. Markovic in the police force these past four years since he killed Paul is very troubling. To this date, Mr. Markovic has never taken any measures to express his regret or remorse for killing Paul. We feel that the only sentence that is appropriate is a prison sentence with time served. It will ensure that Mr. Markovic will be removed from the police force. Nothing will bring Paul back to our family to make it whole again. This pain will be with us until we too die.
1: In rendering his sentence... The judge said he couldn't understand why Markovic displayed such hostility and rancor towards my family. He noted that Markovic had never understood the gravity of the event, and that he seemed more concerned with the tragedy of his own circumstances. The judge ordered that his driver's license be suspended for two years, and sentenced him to 150 hours of community service, and 45 days in prison. He was actually the first working police officer in Montreal to receive a prison sentence. But before Markovic could be taken into custody, his fellow police officers surrounded him, creating a kind of shield. His lawyer was pleading with the judge to postpone the start of his jail time by one week so that Markovic could spend time with his wife and newborn son, who'd been in an incubator for the past month. The judge refused to delay the sentence, but at the very last minute, Markovic's lawyer reached an appeal court judge by phone and Markovic was granted bail pending the appeal life went on as we waited for the appeal hearing the fall months were always especially tough the changing colors the sound of feet shuffling through dried leaves on the ground it all transported me back in such a visceral way to the time of Paul's death. Every year, on the anniversary, I'd go to the cemetery in Montreal where he's buried, sometimes with my parents or with one of Paul's friends. Often we'd find beer bottle caps on the top of his gravestone, tokens left by some unknown visitor. Finally, three years after his sentencing... And eight years after Paul was killed, Markovic's appeal was rejected. But his 45-day prison term was converted to house arrest. He never served a day behind bars, and he continued working as a police officer. He was even promoted up the ranks over the years. A provincial law would later pass requiring that police officers convicted of a crime be removed from the force but it wasn't retroactive. In the years that followed, my family felt this deep void, like we'd done all we could, but there was no closure. Nothing much to show for it. Although, some things did change a bit. The police department adopted a number of new safety regulations, like requiring that officers slow down, and stop at all red lights before proceeding no matter what emergency they may be heading to in that first year after paul was killed my parents were even featured in a training video for drivers of emergency vehicles as a cautionary tale
4: The parents victimes du drame la perte d'un des membres de leur famille suite à un accident impliquant un véhicule d'urgence
0: you have to make a new family after something like this happens you you have to learn how to start over and...
1: My mom looks so uncomfortable, sitting on the couch, her eyes avoiding the camera.
3: You never get over it.
1: My dad looks exhausted.
3: Paul wasn't the only victim. I think it killed a bit of both of us.
1: My mom goes on to say that the good times in our lives are now mostly in the past mostly just memories. As I grew up, I avoided the police as best I could, glaring whenever I saw them. Then one time, when I was in university, my friends and I snuck up onto a roof of an abandoned building downtown. We were taken in the view, and out of nowhere, we were surrounded by about ten cops, flashlights drawn. One by one, My friends were asked for ID before being led back down the series of ladders. I was last. The last cop shone his light over my card and said, McKinnon, McKinnon, McKinnon. How do I I know this name? One of your cops killed my brother, I said. His face dropped. When I got down to the bottom of the building, I saw all my friends lined up against the wall, handcuffed. They looked over at the cop who had his arm around me, he told the other officers to release everyone before apologizing to me. It wouldn't be the last time something like that happened, but the special treatment didn't make me feel any less angry at Markovic. Over the years, he became a bit of an obsession. During the trials, he'd stuck to a story that he'd done nothing wrong, that he'd drive the same way again. It was all so baffling. Then, I think it was about ten years after Paul was killed, a letter was dropped through the mail slot of our front door. It read,
0: Mr. and Mrs. McKinnon, this letter should have been written a long time ago. Unfortunately, just as I was told not to attend your son's funeral, The same people counseled me not to contact you while legal proceedings were still underway. The accident was a tragedy, and I do offer you my heartfelt condolences. To have contributed to the loss of a life, especially a young, promising life such as your son's, is a burden not likely to go away. You wanted me to have a harsh sentence. I got a lifetime of reliving the horror as I wonder at the carelessness of young drivers. Please believe me when I tell you that I probably did more in the past years to slow down any eager recruit I could talk to than any admonitions they received or procedures they must abide by. The only fact that might possibly render your sorrow more bearable is the knowledge that the loss of your son's life won't have been utterly in vain. Police officers will never drive their cruisers in the same manner ever again. I know I haven't. Once again, my apologies for denying you for so long of the condolences you so rightly deserve. Sincerely, S. Markovic.
1: I remember my parents being so furious at the letter. At the time it rang hollow, like a PR move, something he did more for himself than for us, to close the door on what happened. And his line about how police officers would never drive the same way ever again. We saw cops driving dangerously in the city all the time, reversing down blocks, pulling U turns without signaling. A couple of years ago, one even ran a red light while my wife and I were crossing the street. I raised my hands as if to say, What the hell? He stopped, stuck his head out the window, and shouted back at me Call the cops. I did. I report them each time I see something like that. But over the years, the drivers have gotten harder and harder to identify. Back when Paul was killed, the city's cop cars were marked with large ID numbers on the door. Now the numbers are about a third of the size, often much smaller, in a narrow space over the wheels. But rereading Markovic's letter all these years later... I'm not sure what to think. He'd been terrible in court. He'd made it so easy to hate him. But in this letter, he's saying that was just a defense strategy his lawyer came up with. I've been trying to figure out what to make of all this with my grief counselor, Yvonne. I mean, he was like the the boogeyman, essentially, in my family. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he didn't serve any jail time. He just... Basically, at community service. I mean, the the sentence was was the first, I think, of its kind, but it was just so insignificant.
4: Would you ever talk to him? I'm trying to. Oh,
1: because I think I want I want to know that he suffered. I guess.
4: I mean, I understand. You want to hear him say. I think of Paul every single day of my life and that every time I look at my son I think how lucky I am to have the son because at the same time your brother died that's what we want to hear that guy say I would, that's what I want to hear him say
2: yeah.
1: a couple of years ago I started trying to reach out to Markovic. he'd retired from the police force in 2019 and I got no response from his official police email address No response to a LinkedIn message I sent either nor from a home inspection company I emailed where he seemed to be working with his son. I googled him but not much came up other than an old local news website where he was complaining about noise in his neighborhood. The comments said things like Isn't this the asshole who killed Paul McKinnon? Shut up and die. I found out his son is named Alex like me and that his mother was named Stella, like my daughter. And I spoke to a former cop from the same station as him, who'd been to his retirement party, and told me that Markvick looked like a shadow of himself, that he'd just said a few words and then was gone. Eventually, I found out where he lived, and decided to drop a letter off at his house, asking him to speak with me. This is before I started making the podcast, so the sound's not great. But I recorded the drive on my phone.
2: I don't know, it's Harry at all. I mean we're just on the edge of the island, like literally.
1: My friend Steph came along for emotional support.
2: What are we doing? I don't know, but I'm glad I'm doing it with you. <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it with me
1: too. I was nervous. What would happen if I ran into him?
2: Uh that's my it.
1: We pulled up to his address.
2: Fourteen. Ah, is that pulling in? Uh, don't pull in. Don't pull in. Okay, uh... here I'll, I'll here I'll go here.
1: There was a long driveway leading up to a house that we could barely see.
2: I don't see if there's a mailbox
1: anywhere. It was pitch black, and there were no lights along the path.
2: No. Where the Where's the fucking mailbox? Well, it's probably like on the porch, which is no, who uh... knows how deep in there.
1: The only way to deliver the letter was to step into the darkness. All right. We walked along the driveway. There were two cars there. Someone was probably home. I walked up the steps, dropped the letter in his mailbox, and we hurried back to the car. That's scary.
2: That was super scary. <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, jeez, that was like really scary. Yeah. That was the most scary thing yes. I've done this year.
2: Yeah, I really wonder if it's going to respond.
1: A few days later, I got an email from the company Markovic seemed to be working at that I'd reached out two weeks earlier. It said, Sir, Mr. Markovic has read all the posts, letters, and emails you've sent to him and his employers, but does not wish to communicate with you. Please refrain from further contacts. Regards. It was unsigned. And I haven't heard anything from him since. Then, a couple of months ago... I went to the courthouse to reread some of the documents from the trial. The clerk told me there was no record of them. I'd accessed them a year before, so I asked him to check again. But he said there was nothing coming up under the name Serge Markovic. He said the only explanation he could think of was if Markovic had been pardoned. But he couldn't confirm it. Because by the very nature of a pardon, only the perpetrator and victim are entitled to that information. I later called the Parole Board of Canada, and they told me that because Paul is dead, I can apply to find out on his behalf. But they warned me the process could take months, or longer. A pardon is the forgiveness of a crime. I know Markovic didn't set out to kill Paul that day. But I still can't wrap my head around how I could forgive someone who won't even speak with me. At the same time, what I've started to realize is that this obsession with wanting to talk to Markovic, with wanting to know how he's felt in the years since killing Paul, it's just another way I've been avoiding thinking about how I've felt since losing Paul. It's another thing that's been blocking me from my memories. do you What do you think of 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 hypnotherapy do you think that can that can bring back some other memories that i've lost or what's your opinion on that
4: well i I don't know why you have to be in such a hurry you know for that sort of thing because no. i in my experience with people with trauma, it takes time to unravel now. I'm not a believer, I suppose, of hypnotism because I don't believe this should be hurried along. I think it, uh, it's a process. It's a journey. And if you unpack it slowly, it's going to be by far the best. But if you want to try hypnotism, then you, you, you'll see if it works for you. It could. I—you know, I just don't know.
1: So I am on my way to the hypnotherapist, gonna be put under I guess, I don't know, I have no idea what to expect from this but I'm, I'm,
2: I'm open.
5: Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC original podcast about the messiness of human connection. The show features deeply personal stories, like a mother forced to press charges against her own son, a couple that falls in love through Google Translate, and a man whose father-in-law asks him to build his coffin. Subscribe to Love Me at cbc.ca slash loveme, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Okay. I've booked myself a hypnosis session with a woman named Christine. Uh, we've arrived, apparently. It's at her home in the West Island of Montreal. Hi. Hi. Should I take my shoes off out here? I arrive with a coffee in my hand, and she tells me to stop drinking it. I just had like three sips. Apparently caffeine can interfere with the whole process. I don't mind throwing it out to you. Is there a. She gives me a glass of water instead and has me lie down on an olive green day bed. And then we just get into it.
2: Like, I'm much. Uh,
1: I want to remember what I lost. And not so much as the sadness that everything caused.
2: Yeah. All right, let's take a deep breath in together. again. Let yourself relax.
1: She spends a few minutes inducing me.
2: You can drift off to anywhere that you want to go.
1: Trying to guide me towards a state somewhere between wakefulness and sleep.
2: Let yourself leave your mind. Drifting off. And we're there now Just see, I feel like I'm gonna watch that A doll doll house. The whole wall is open. You see multiple floors Hmm. Have a closer look. There's something, I just can't see what it is. It's yeah. I see Paul's face. Mm. As a younger kid than when he died.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: He's kind of like looking up now at me. Like a smile. Thrilling smile. Like, <laughs> he doesn't seem to really move. He just his facial expression doesn't seem to move. It's just it's almost like a, like a cardboard cutout of his, just his face. Ooh. Big wide smile, almost like a sticker, like plastered on top of this helmet. Interesting. It's gone though. Okay. You went away. Okay.
1: The session isn't a breakthrough where everything comes flooding back. But I feel Paul with me. I see images of him laughing. The laugh I'd forgotten uncontrollable and contagious his whole body shaking i see a memory of him walking down a gravel road at summer camp i see him pitching at this baseball game where his hair fell in front of his face and made him mess up his throw everyone started laughing and he thought it was funny too nothing ever uh, seemed to bother him like for me i think i would have i would have been Mortified to, or really embarrassed to have messed up in front of everybody and to have everyone laughing at me. He just kind of. <laughs> I get to see him kind of like, <laughs> like laughing, being like, Yeah, <laughs> that
2: was stupid, I'm an idiot, kind of thing.
1: I just started to cry when I saw him just laughing like that. did a debrief with Christine a few days after our session and she said something that stuck with me
5: those living memories are you they cannot be separate from you you are not separate from them
1: like even if I don't consciously remember all the moments that I had with Paul the sum of those moments Have shaped who I am. They're all part of me. He's part of me. And that can never be lost. In one of my last sessions with Yvonne, she told me that. One way to tell if my family's grieving process might be stuck somewhere is whether we still picture Paul as a 14-year-old or whether we can picture him growing older. I asked my mom about it on what would have been Paul's 44th birthday, which is the same age my parents were when he died.
2: It was very
0: sad this year. Maybe because of him being the same age as we were when he died that we just kind of were very aware of all that time that was stolen from him, you know.
1: Did you you get into thinking what he'd be doing now?
0: No. I don't want to do that. I really don't. I mean, sometimes I think, oh, your child and Sarah's children would love Uncle Paul, you know. But I don't want to make up a life for him that he didn't live.
5: I almost find those questions a little annoying. (laughs) Like, ugh you know like he was enough as he was you know what i mean like it was a full life even if i feel it was a short life yeah it's it was it's hard for it was hard and it still is hard for him to be static and for us to be changing because we keep changing and he doesn't as well and i think that becomes a constant readjustment against his stillness.
1: Why do you think that's hard actually? Cuz I in a way I would think that that would almost be comforting.
5: No. No, cuz I think what I miss is not who he was. Like what I miss is the ongoing relationship. Right. Like that's the mourning. That's the grief is that that particular relationship doesn't continue. Yeah. And so you kind of have to keep creating relate like how like how do I relate to a I don't, you know, when I was 16 and he was 14, that's a relationship. But now I'm in my 40s and he's 14.
1: When you think of Paul, do you think of him at what stage of his life do you think of him? Um, up until maybe
3: he would have been getting into his late 30s, I thought of him as 14. Lately, I've been thinking, well, he would have been, he would have been a 44-year-old man. And uh, then I have to think about how that would have looked. I can't quite capture that. But I don't see him as that young boy the same way. So he's coming along with us. I talk to Paul a lot. I, uh, I feel he's here.
1: I talk with Paul too sometimes. Mostly on the anniversary of his death. And every year on his birthday, I try to do something new. Something he never got the chance to do. One year, I drove out to the Pacific Ocean. Another year, the desert. This year, I'm making this podcast. My mom recently found a school project Paul had to do in grade five. A biography of his family. In it, he describes my sister as, quote, "...very kind, generous." and helpful to both me and my brother when we have problems in our homework. I like her very much. He says this about me. Although he likes to pretend he is a macho man ninja, he's really a soft-hearted little boy who wants to be top man. I love him a lot. And that smell of rot... I smelled when I touched his body at his wake. That scared me whenever I got too close to the box of his bloody clothes in the basement. Every now and then, I smell that smell again. It comes out of nowhere. It doesn't scare me anymore, though. It feels like Paul trying to tell me something. Or letting me know things are going to be okay. And it makes me smile.
0: I think that when Paul first died, one thing that really, really surprised me and made me like pause was that sometimes people would say, oh, is it hard for you to see boys his age with their parents? And it, it's the strangest, it was strange to me that I kept thinking that if I could have a son who's still alive but who wasn't Paul, would I want that? And so I kind of thought, no, I want to be Paul's mother. I mean, this happened. I hate that it happened, but I would never have given up the opportunity of being Paul's mother and having Paul in my life. I was never envious of other mothers with their sons who weren't Paul paul was a gift and i will always be grateful that i was paul's mother i'll always be grateful that i'm your mother i'm always be grateful that i'm sarah's mother i wouldn't want it any different um who
1: was your favorite kid
0: Every one of you, every one of you said to me, I know I'm your favorite. (laughs) I know I'm your favorite. (laughs) Each of you.
1: reached out to the Montreal Police Department about certain details of the story, but they declined our request for an interview. Sarah's Markovic did not respond to our request for an interview. Sorry About the Kid is written and produced by me, Alex McKinnon, and Mira Bertwintonic. Editing and sound design by Mira burt Jeff Turner is our senior producer. Our theme music is by David Drury. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our associate producer is Caitlin Taylor. R.F. Nurani is executive producer. Our logo is by Mathilde Corbet. Special thanks to Yvonne Clark, Christine Clark, Joanna Fox, Eric Doherty, John Meshack, Cecil Fernandez, Tanya Springer, and to everyone I interviewed for the show, even those whose conversations didn't make it in. And a giant thank you to my family. I know it wasn't always easy. And if you like the show, we would love it if you would rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And also tell your friends about it. They can follow Sorry About The Kid on CBC Listen or wherever they get their podcasts. Thanks for listening.